we, we want to welcome him, those that are streaming live with us today and those that will be heading over there in the podcast later on. And I, I just hate the screens are, are down today because um, there were some things I wanted to do, but we're going to do them a little differently this morning. I want you to grab your sermon notes section, and you see there's some white space there. You're going to need that throughout our message today. But I just I hope you have something to write with. And, and if you do, I just want you to think with me for a moment. Uh, Phil Works, would you just stand up for just a moment? Would you just kind of look around the congregation? Even in the balcony, balcony counts as well. Well, of course, you can't see that far anymore. But if you just, if you just kind of look around, who, who do you think is the smartest, wisest person in the room today? Okay, great answer. Uh, other than, but that is a wonderful answer. Other than that, outside of your family structure, as you kind of look across the group and these up in the balcony, uh, do you see like Bart McCoy? I mean, he's pretty, I mean, that engineering kind of background, pretty, pretty sharp. Or we move over here and there's Hobart Farrell. I mean, you start getting into these doctorate degrees, you know what I'm saying? Greek, I mean, all that kind of stuff. But who do you think is, is, is the smartest and wisest of everybody in the room? You now, you only have eight seconds. No, I, I'm, I'm just, in, in your opinion, who do you think? I mean, you, I mean, is there anybody, does anybody look smart in here that I could maybe call on to get some help today? You, you don't think anyone looks very smart. Okay, thank you for your, all your help. I guess we'll do this a different way. Um, I want you to think about villains today. Villain as in V-I-L-L-A-I-N, if you're spelling. Think about villains. I, I want you to think on your little white space there about the three most famous, most recognized villains of all time. I want you to think about that for just a moment. We had some pictures of them. Uh, well, you can turn around and look at the back screen. There it is on the back screen, okay? All the villains. Uh, do you, who do you think the number three all-time villain would be? I hear the Joker. I hear what? Josh. Josh Thomas. Okay. Well, if you guessed a person, you'd be incorrect. It's an animal, as in a shark. Number three, all kind. There he is, right there on on the back screen. Number three villain of all time, according to Americans, is the shark in Jaws. Number two, you've already guessed, the Joker. Now, some of you in your culture, the Joker would be Batman, right? In another generation, it would be Dark Rider. All right. What about the number one all-time most recognized villain? Anybody want to take a, uh, a guess? Now we know Lee Brown is the smartest man in the whole room, okay? Darth Vader comes in at number one, but let's change gears quickly. What about three, two, and one, number three, number two, number one, in terms of Christmas villains? I hear Grinch, I hear Scrooge. What are some other ones that come to mind? Who, who, who is that? Okay. Any others? 
okay. Number three, all-time Christmas villain, uh, villain, are you ready? Ebenezer Scrooge. For you that came out of the 1938 era. Number two, y'all guessed it, the Grinch. For you that came out of the 1966 era. And the number one all-time Christmas villain, Mr. Potter. It's a wonderful life for you that came out of the, with James Hampton, the 1946 era. But today I want to talk to you about another villain. Matthew chapter number two. Would you find your way there? Matthew chapter number two. And uh, I want us just to spend five steps and take five steps together. The first of those five steps today, we're going to end up on Christmas Eve with step number five as we just talk about rediscovering Christmas. We had a little bumper video I wish we could have showed you today. Maybe we can get that cut in next week. Maybe we can get John Easterling working this week and get some videos going, some projection going. Uh, but maybe you'll be able to see some of those things next week. But in doing so, I want us to take the first step today, uh, uh, together today by looking at the real dark side of Christmas, the ugly side of Christmas, if you will. I know that's going to be your favorite side, Right. But uh, a side that many times we don't look at very often, and that is a man that tried to steal Christmas, the original Christmas, and that was Herod the Great. And today I want to talk to you about this villain named Herod. His father got him his first appointment, Aris Antipater, went to the Roman authorities and said, my son would be an amazing governor. And so they put him in charge, really, of just a small area that we know from a geographical standpoint as Galilee. It was, all, it was filled with all kinds of road bandits and thieves, murderers. And so Herod the Great's responsibility initially as a very young man was to come into the area of Galilee and to take control and authority over that area to rid them of all this criminal element. But as time wore on, we know that Mark Anthony, when he finally came to power, he went to the Roman Senate and convinced the Roman Senate to give Herod, Herod the Great, a much more expansive role over all Judea. But they also elongated his title, not by just being the governor of Judea, but he was appointed, and here was his official title, the King of Jews. Because he had fictitiously made up this legacy and lineage of his birthright, claiming that he was a Jew, which he certainly was not. This man, Herod the Great, had all kinds of challenges from a family life standpoint. He was married 11 times, but only had 10 wives. Figure that out. Let that sink in for just a second. Have you caught on to that yet? Yes, he married one lady two different times. By the time, the second time he married her, after three years after he married her the second time, he had her executed. And I guess that's one way to deal with a uncooperative wife, but we won't get into that today, okay? But think about that for just a moment. Ten wives, eleven marriages. But to say, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, that his, his family life was a struggle for him would be an understatement. His family life was filled with intrigue, suspicion, murder, all kinds of things. But we know that Herod the Great was one of those individuals that was best known for an, an edict that he 
consummated and he passed by his own pronunciation and his own edict that all of the children, male children of the Israelite culture, during that time that the Lord Jesus Christ was born, that they would be put to death. You know, it's interesting, when Herod the Great came to that time to die, he was so fearful that all of Israel would rejoice during his time of death that he had already stationed in all the key cities of the regions that he ruled assassins. Josephus, the great historian, tells us that once it was announced that Herod was, was dead, that these assassins would go and they would take the lives of many key Israel figures because... As he died, he wanted there to be weeping across the whole land of Israel. That's how wicked Herod was. Herod the Great. And as evangelicals, we know him best as that man. That man, the dark side of Christmas, that's represented right here in Matthew chapter number 2. Some of you like to travel. Some of you have been to Holy Land. And as you go there, one of the places that they'll typically carry you on is the Tomb of the Innocent. They claim that uh, there are literally hundreds of small babies that were born and then taken, their lives taken within the first year, or year and a half of existence, and they were all buried in this tomb, the Tomb of the Innocent. It was a terrible, terrible time as the Lord Jesus came into planet Earth as a human being, God and human being himself, man, God, God, man. Equally, both of those, if we can just wrap our minds around that, God and man, man and God. But as we do so, let's grab our Bibles and let's begin reading in Matthew chapter number two. And we start by just thinking a little bit about Herod because as we come to verse number one in Matthew chapter two, there's a phrase there that I want us to read together as we read that first verse, and then we just camp out there for a moment. Here's what Matthew chapter two, beginning in verse one, this is what our Bibles say. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time, and here's the phrase, of King Herod, as our Lord and Savior was born, and during the time of King Herod, Herod. One of the important things I just want you to jot down when we think about and some takeaways, maybe you're asking today, why in the world would pastor decide to talk about, preach on, teach out of God's word on this character, Herod? I mean, what a bummer. The dark side of Christmas, come on, it's already been a year that we would rather forget in many situations and of many accounts. Because when we look at the life of Herod, there are some amazing truths that we can gather, package up, and apply to our lives. And one of the things I want you to understand about Herod was Herod was filled with self-centeredness. When we think about Herod's life, the one thing that continues to come to the surface is that Herod his life was filled with self-absorption and self-centeredness. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to the Christmas time and the whole Christmas season, so many, in so many aspects, that's something that we all have to battle. This area of self-centeredness. Our schedules, our gifts, our things. 
And I think as we look at Herod's life, there's some truths that we'll be able to jot down today that are very, very important. The byproducts of this self-centeredness really represents three very important things. I want you to jot them down and take them with you today. Number one, we see out of this self-centeredness that Herod, he developed anxiety that leaded to doubt and uncertainty. Herod, because of his self-centeredness, he, he developed anxiety leading to doubt and uncertainty. When you look at this little phrase, during the time of King Herod, we don't understand just looking at it on the surface of the pages really what that meant. Because you see, self-centeredness was something that Herod bout, that, that, that he fought in his personal life. There was a war going on in him personally. He was appointed the king of Jews. But when you think about him in contrast to our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior was born the king of Jews. He didn't become the king of Jews. He was born the king of Jews. In fact, history tells us that Herod seized all of the power that he could. Isn't it interesting as a contrast? Our Lord and Savior gave up heaven itself to come down to planet earth. What a contrast of two characters, Herod and the Lord Jesus. Herod wanted everything for himself. He was so self-centered and so self-absorbed. But Jesus gave just about everything away of himself. When we think about the background of Herod, I mentioned a moment ago, he made up his whole lineage of this Israelite culture. In fact, his mother and dad were out of an Edomite culture, uh, completely contrary to Israel's standing in terms of ancestry, but he so desperately wanted to be included in the Jewish side of things. He had been appointed the king of Jews. But our Lord and Savior, he also battled some of those issues. You remember when the, the Pharisees came to our Lord and Savior and said, well, we're of the ancestry of Abraham. And then they began some gutter talk about Jesus. What about your father? What about your mother? What about your history and heritage? You know, when you think about Herod, personally, you think about a man that was total, totally alienated. A man that had rejection in his life on all different fronts. His family life was a struggle. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. His political life, that very connection that he struggled with, he could never really fit anywhere. He was really in a far out place, a far outpost in terms of the Roman authorities. And he was so fearful that they would reject him, but he was also battling the constant challenge that those Jewish people around him did not accept him either. But rejection drove him into isolation. When you think about our Lord and Savior standing in contrast to that, our Lord and Savior was rejected, but it didn't drive him away. It drove him to the point that he was willing to invest in others like none other we've ever seen before. Think about our Lord and Savior. He gave himself to that woman that was caught in adultery, the woman at the well, blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, and the list goes on and on. Personally, life was such a struggle for Herod. Personally, he struggled almost every single day of his life. In fact, when it came to the time for him to die, he died a very horrible death. In fact, if I would read to you Josephus' account, 
it would be very grotesque, very profane, because we know that Herod died of a sexually transmitted disease, a horrible death. Five days before his death, he killed his son, Antipater, because he was fearful just five days before his death that Antipater was trying to take over his reign and his kingdom. When we think about our Lord and Savior, he also died a horrible death, didn't he? But for a contrast of reasons, our Lord, as he stretched out his arms, died for us a common criminal, a humiliating death on the cross. But Herod didn't just struggle personally, but he struggled politically. I mean, he lived in a world that the Roman government had been turned upside down. He lived in a time that Julius Caesar had been killed, Cassius had been killed, Octavian and Mark Anthony had been at war about who was going to finally come out and be the successor in that, in that Roman authority and all the chaos of that. Finally, Mark Anthony, with Cleopatra at his side, sanctioned Herod for this promotion of all of Judea to be the governor but also to be the very one that was in charge of the king. He was the king of the Jews. And even with that politically, Cleopatra was lobbying behind the scenes that Israel might be annexed by Egypt. And so Herod was fearful of that. He was fearful of losing this region that, that he was in control of. But in the middle of that, with the suspicion of Rome, there was also this constant challenge with the Jews and the upheaval and the confusion of that, personally and politically and religiously he struggled. There was no place that he fit in in his religion, his spiritual dimension of his life. We know that early on he decided that he would build this great temple for all the Jewish people. What an incredible accomplishment. Herod felt like that building this monstrosity, this huge temple for the Jewish people, that they would open their hearts and arms to him and welcome him in. But nothing could be further from the truth. Although I'm sure there was great appreciation for a wonderful, majestic temple, it certainly did not endear him to them. When you think about this temple and its construction, think about... A hundred, I mean, 10,000 men working 70 years to get it completed. 10,000 men worked 70 years. Have you ever thought about the fact that our Lord Jesus was born, and as he was born, the temple was being constructed? At age 12, when his parents carried him to the temple, in one of the few accounts that we have of his adolescent life, the temple was being constructed. When Jesus, at around age 30, began his ministry, have you ever stopped to think? And the temple was being constructed. Even after our Lord Jesus had died, hung on that cross, placed in the tomb, and ascended into the heavenlies, the temple was still being constructed. Even when Paul, Saul Paul, was carried off and carted off to Rome and later beheaded, the temple was still being constructed. And what a, what a thought for it finally to be finished, long after Herod was gone, only to see the Roman authorities just a few short later, years later come in and decimate all that Herod had invested in to try to build. I'm telling you, religiously he struggled. Politically he struggled. 
Personally, he struggled, and he certainly struggled domestically. We made reference a few moments ago about the different marriage difficulties that he had. Here was a man, Herod, killed two of his sons initially as he came to power. He had many children. He, carried real, he killed maybe the only woman that he really loved, Mary Omni, of royal ancestry. Mary, Mary Omni the Beautiful, as she was known. Probably the woman that he loved more than any other. He took her life. He took his father-in-law's life. He killed his two brothers. When you think about this, Herod lived a miserable life. And much of it was because he could think only of himself. So self-centered so self-absorbed, consumed with power and control, consumed with self. As we think about him, he was a man that as it came time for the birth of our Lord and Savior, placing him in the manger, there was no kneeling in a manger for him. There was no experiencing the Christ child for him. In fact, there was no hearing from the word, any word from the Lord, and there was certainly no following a star. And I just wonder, as we think about this time of the year, if we can learn an important lesson from the life of one of the most dark characters in all the Bible, Herod, of how important it is that you and I guard against this concept of self-centeredness, learning that it's not about us. It's about the very birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to that understanding, it will help us to better understand and guard against you and I not being able to experience the Christ child this season, not being able to experience the joy of this time of the year. And so often self-centeredness keeps all of us from hearing a word from the Lord. It keeps us from kneeling at that manger and following a star. And I would just suggest to you that maybe this time of the year, we see this more than any other time of the year. Anxiety led to great doubt and suspicion. But I want you to jot down a second very important thing that I think we can take away from this statement. During the time of King Herod, Magi, look in verse 1 from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, look in verse 2, I think there's an important second factor here for us to grapple with. And that is Herod's self-centeredness began to provide pressure leading him to have improper influence. It, had, it, it brought about pressure in his life leading to improper influence. Have you ever thought about that self-centeredness so often leads people to become, it causes people around us, if we're self-centered, to become almost like pawns, almost like things people that are, we can manipulate and to exploit. And when you look at these verses, you begin to see that coming forth from Herod's life. Look in verse 2. And these magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, verse number 2, where is the one who is born king of Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Look in verse 3. When Queen King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. We'll come back to that word in just a moment. And all Jerusalem with him, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
you know, some words jump out to us in those few verses. In verse 2, they came to worship him. And in verse 3, it says that uh, the proosco, the, 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 the Greek word that in verse number 3, it greatly disturbed him or he was disturbed. That Greek word means to shake up, to stir up, to unsettle, to cause there be to be confusion. You see, Herod the Great, his mind, his soul, his spirit was always greatly disturbed when anyone else, remember the word worshiped? They worshiped the Lord Jesus. They worshiped this Christ child that greatly infuriated him. Self-centeredness often causes us and drives us to manipulate and exploit people to have improper influence with them. In fact, did you see it in verse number four? He first of all began to pressure the chief priest. Look at it. All the people's chief priests and the teachers asking him, applying pressure to them. Now, where is the Messiah to be born? You know, when I see that word Messiah as Herod speaking, I throw on the brakes because it's kind of a surprise for us. We see that Herod recognizes who Jesus is. Did you see how he referenced Jesus? He asked them where the Messiah, where the very Christos, the very Amashiah would be, the Messiah was to be born. He recognized who the Lord Jesus was. Look down in verse number seven. I want you to see this influence and how it plays out. In verse seven, then Herod called the Magi. Look at the improper influence with them. Secretly, that should give us some warning, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Do you see the pressure that he's applying? Look in verse eight. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, now you go and you search. Again, I want you to do something for me out of his self-centeredness. You go and you search carefully for the child and as soon as you find him, report to me, there it is again, so that I too may go and worship him. The pressure that so often comes from the very improper influences that when we are self-centered, we may not even at times recognize that we're doing this. I asked someone this week. We were talking about exchanging gifts. How many of you are going to exchange at least one gift this Christmas? Can I see your hands? Okay. How many of you are planning on exchanging a lot more than one gift this Christmas? Can I see your hands? Almost the same number. Okay. But we were talking about exchanging gifts. And uh, this individual has recently moved in, or last year or so, into a new neighborhood. And this individual that I will not name because share, story show without, shared without their permission, and, and they were just sharing that uh, last Christmas they were brand new to the neighborhood that they'd moved into and they weren't really prepared. They were not really prepared for neighborhood families that lived around them exchanging gifts. They said, we've never lived in a neighborhood where people brought us certain things for Christmas. We're not related to our neighbors, we barely knew them. We were new into our home. And all of a sudden, a week before Christmas, this neighbor came over and they had this freshly baked thing. This one had brought us something for our house. Three of their neighbors had brought them gifts and they were sharing with me. They said, now we feel obligated 
to get them something. And so there ensued a very interesting discussion about gifts. You know, we don't even realize it at times that out of an obligation or a sense of the season, many times we do things, and again, I don't think in a premeditated way, but we at times do certain things to stay ingratiated into in someone's good stead or good standing without really the heart of true giving. And there are so many things that we can take away from Herod's life in this particular moment when it comes to this season. I want to show you one other thing quickly. Herod. He had a third very important characteristic that I want us to jot down. Not just pressure leading to improper influence, but this self-centeredness also left, led to stress that led to total anger in his life. Stress that built up in his life that caused him to go on these fits of rage and anger and even violence. Herod had a real leaning in his life toward rage. He, see, how would we describe that in East Texas? Man, this dude had a short fuse. A short fuse. Look in your Bibles in verse number 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Look in verse 13. And when all had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Go down to verse number 16. When Herod realized that he had been, and I love this word, outwitted. When he had been tricked, impasio is, is the Greek word there, it uh, really is a child's word. It's, 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 a, it's a word for when children ridicule one another or poke fun at one another from being deceived or tricked in some way. If he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was, here's the word, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Stress leaning to anger. Did you see what he began to do? He began to vent. When he figured out and he calculated what had happened, this deception, and he felt like he was totally outwitted or totally deceived, he lashed out. No one is going to challenge my leadership. No one will take my throne. And I guess his actions made him feel like that in some way he was in better control of those things around him. And just wondering this Christmas, thinking about the dark side of Christmas with Herod, are you going to allow anger to rob you of the joy that comes along with the coming of our Savior during this season? Friday, I'm riding down the loop and, and um, you know, when you get out there around the mall in the, in the month of December in Longview, Texas, you better have a little patience. Can I hear an amen? You know, everything just takes a little longer, doesn't it? But, you know, if you really want to know how short people's fuses are, just pull up, even in the middle of a pandemic, 
on the Friday following Thanksgiving and just take a little gander at people around you driving cars. Pretty interesting. People blowing the horns at one another, people cutting one another off. Even when people don't do anything, you can kind of look in the windshield there and you can see, hey, they're saying something about me. You know, I was just wondering as we go into this Christmas season, if we are going to allow this year our joy to be stolen and taken from us and voluntarily give that up because we're frustrated or angry or things seem to be totally out of our control. So I look at the life of Herod. This is one of those great lessons that I think we can learn. You know, certain things that are going to happen to us in this month that are going to be totally outside our control. For just a moment there on the front pew, I'm thinking a moment ago, you know what? Josh and I have worked all this time trying to get this bumper video ready, and doggone it, the screens don't work. And doggone it, the pictures won't come up. And the points don't come up. And I saw something today I thought I would never see again in Baptist life. A worship leader had to stoop so low as to open the Baptist hymnal. So just asking, how are you and I going to handle those moments this Christmas season? And there will be many. Things that happen completely outside of the scope of our control. And we can receive those in one way or another. We can respond to those in one way or another. Those choices are ours. This week... God just kind of spoke into my heart two amazing truths about Matthew 2 when it comes to Herod. I guess I've read so many things, Peter Wagner's book about Herod, maybe one of the best, and spent some time just reading about the background of Herod. Man, I I don't think there's a, a darker picture of a human being than Herod. But you know, the more I I listened and read and focused on his life, I I finally kind of started feeling sorry for him, if you can believe that. Here's a guy that really, deep down, just wanted to fit somewhere. And so he goes to the Jewish people, the king of the Jews, and, and and he tries to do something nice for them, something kind and a kind gesture. We're going to build this magnificent temple. I can see how important worship is for all of us Jews, all of us Jews. And, and I guess he thought he could buy their love. But you know, for a man that wanted to fit with the Jews, the first thing that I took away from his life is that he... Uh, He didn't know Jewish history very well. This man thought he was going to thwart the very plan of God to bring in his own son into planet Earth. He thought by some deception with a few smart men 
by just uh, visiting with a few of the chief priests that he could prevent the Lord Jesus' birth. But you know, there was, a, there was another man that tried in Jewish history to kill a bunch of babies several hundred years earlier. To also derail God's plan for a group of people coming out of Egypt. He also passed an edict very similar to this to kill these male children of the Israelite culture. You remember his name. His name was Pharaoh. And of all things, a basket with a little baby boy named Moses was placed in the river of death called the Nile. And it floated down, and of all the people, what an amazing coincidence. Pharaoh's own daughter saw basket, heard baby cry. And of all the things, the deliverer of God's people, Moses, the very one that was going to be their physical deliverer, was reared in Pharaoh's own house. And I wonder if Herod would have known Jewish history better if maybe the outcome of Herod's reign would have been a little different. Isn't that just like our God? Man, when our God does something, he does it up right, amen? But you know, here we are, And Herod thinks by passing this edict to kill all of these children that he is going to derail God's incredible plan only to find out that that was a total impossibility. Because word came to Joseph in a dream, take my son, the Lord Jesus, take the Christ child to Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Out of Egypt came a physical deliverer hundreds of years before. And this time out of Egypt returning in just a few short months upon Herod's death was going to come the spiritual deliverer, the Lord Jesus. And what it taught me again is how important it is that you and I understand God's will will be carried out. It will not be thwarted. It will not be stopped. It will not be derailed. But God spoke to me about something else. Look in your Bible at how God used one of the most wicked men to ever live. I think as we just reviewed and refreshed some of the historical facts about old Herod, three different times in just this one very short passage of Matthew 2, we see God using maybe one of the most wicked men to ever live for his purposes. Look at the first time. It came down there in verse number 5, right on the heels of when Herod was asking the chief priest, he said, I want you to tell me and communicate with me. I want to know exactly where this Messiah is going to be born. Do you see that at the end of verse number four? And then look what verse five says 
the scribes, the priests, spoke into the, to, and answered him, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Out of the very lineage of David, the tribe of Judah, the prophecy once again told of how our Lord and Savior would come. And again, God is using one of the most wicked men to point out and the fulfillment of one of the great prophecies of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Look down in verse number 15. We see the second time that this happens. In verse number 15, speaking of taking Jesus down into Egypt, looking back, back up in verse 14, so Joseph, he gets up when God's told him, you take that child away from Herod, you keep him safe, take him to Egypt until Herod has died. Look in verse 14, so he got up and he took. He took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt. Now listen to this statement in verse 15, where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. See, not only in verse 5 and 6 and 7 were Micah 5 fulfilled, but now Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 is fulfilled. Another prophetic statement that the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah, would come up out of Egypt, the very one that he called his son. But a third time this happens. Look down in verse 17. When the Magi had learned at the end of verse 16... Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. The killing of all these babies. Can you imagine? How could anything good come from that? How could anything good come from that? And the Bible says in verse 18 and following, and a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 13, 31, verses 15 and following. The incredible prophetic statement that is our, the very Savior was to be born. There would be weeping coinciding with that. There would be the very weeping all across the land. These children being killed and the heartbreak of that. And I would just suggest to you, as God spoke into my heart about this wicked man Man, if he had just known Jewish history a little better. But I think more importantly, as God spoke into my heart, God was just saying to me, don't you see, this is the absolute power of God. For him to be able to take wickedness like Herod and to turn it around and to use it for anything beneficial is a miracle in itself. And you know what that says to you and what it says to me? In the midst of our blunders, sin, and failures, when you and I ask God through this holiday season, God, is there any way anything good can come from this? What an incredible message of hope that our God can accomplish things that no other can. God's will will be accomplished. You know, we historically recognize 
three wise men. But wouldn't it have been something if old Herod would have also come and, take, and taken his crown off in front of the very Christ child and to lay it down at the very feet of the Christ child tucked away there in that manger? Wouldn't that have been a moment for him to take the appointed crown and to lay it right before the very appointed, no, 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 the one that became the king of, no, 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 the one that was born the king of Jews. If Herod had only taken everything that he had and laid it before the king, what a life-changing moment that would have been. And you know, you and I have the same opportunity. Even out of the dark moments of our lives and the failures, you and I still have that privilege and opportunity to come to a God that can take even the worst of scenarios and to do something spectacular as only God can do. But that happens when we're willing to lay all that we have before him. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you as we take these moments to rediscover Christmas. We thank you today as we just started by just thinking about for a few moments the dark side, the ugly side of Christmas. We recognize there were those that were working against your ultimate plan. The plan of that redemptive thread that began way back there in our Bibles in the book of Genesis and that chronos and that moment of time and how you weave through prophetical utterances, how you weave through the lineage to bringing about the birth of the Lord Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice and savior of this entire world. Father, what a moment this was when Jesus was born. And no matter how much evil worked against him, again, your authority and your power shone through in this moment. As you shared insights and dreams with Magi, as you spoke and shared directly to a father, Joseph, about how to take care of his child, Father, again, your authority shines through. And because of that, there's hope for all of us. There's hope in the sin and the mistakes and the burden of misturns and missteps throughout our life that you are the all-powerful God that can turn all things around. So as we enter into this special season, I pray that you would keep our joy intact that you would bridle those moments of impetuous desire to be angry or to have a fit of rage or to lash out, to honk, to swerve. And that, Father, in the midst of that, we would understand that this is a celebration of a special season. That, Father, there might be something that would be different that would shine through our lives. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your word today. But we're also, and most importantly, we are so thankful for the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.